Hey friends, Christine here. I wanted to share a special announcement with you before today's podcast interview begins. Now through November 30th, 2019, I am hosting a 30 book giveaway on my website. The Lord has blessed me with the chance to collaborate with the publishers of almost all the Hope and Help Project guests I've interviewed this year. And the result being three different book bundles of 10 titles each that are going to be delivered to three different winners. I am so grateful for the generosity of the publishers who have agreed to align with my mission of providing gospel hope and help for life's challenging problems, you can enter to win a bundle of your very own by visiting faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. The giveaway information is at the top of the page, and you can click on the button there to find out all about the details. The three winners will be announced on December 1st, 2019. Please help me spread the word about this really incredible giveaway. By doing so, you also help to raise awareness about this podcast, as well as the helpful books that our podcast guests have written. You can also access the giveaway link by scrolling down to the show notes and clicking the link listed there. Thank you so much for your continued support, friends, and enjoy the show. Hey friends, welcome to the Hope and Help Project, the podcast that cultivates compassionate biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. I'm your host, Christine Chapel, and I'm really glad you're here to join on today's conversation with Lydia Brownback. Today we'll be talking about Lydia's book, Flourish, how the love of Christ frees us from self-focus to help us discern the worldly influences that threaten to warp our understanding of what it really means to be a Christian. We'll explore topics such as self-consciousness, self-care, self-improvement, and self-condemnation, and discover how the gospel of Jesus Christ equips us to enjoy true freedom in these areas. If this is your first time listening to the show, be sure to learn more about the Hope and Help Project by visiting faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. The link is posted in the show description, and by visiting that page, you can learn all about the mission of the podcast. Now, before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Lydia Brownback is the author of several books and is a speaker at Women's Events Internationally. She also presently works on the editorial team at Crossway Books. Lydia's books include On-the-Go Devotionals for Women, Finding God in My Loneliness, and Sing a New Song, A Woman's Guide to the Psalms. Hey there, Lydia. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. It's great to be here, Christine. Your newest book is entitled Flourish, How the Love of Christ Frees Us from Self-Focus, and in it you seek to help us become more discerning about the worldly influences and even the self-absorbed Christian living messages that threaten to warp our understanding of what it really means to be a Christian. Would you share with us some background about the book and why you had such a desire to write on this topic? Yeah, you know, I I think just I work in publishing, and so I'm exposed to a lot of what people are interested in reading and what they're picking up on the internet. And, and uh, you know, my focus in particular is on women and women's ministry and what women are reading and taking in. And I started to notice so much of, of their yearning for answers to things, trying to understand what discipleship is all about. And some of the resources that are available, so many of them are leaving them hollow. And they just are curving them inward instead of upward and outward. And some of these women are concluding that Christianity doesn't work or they have wrong ideas about discipleship. And then it's faith quenching. 
had a growing passion to connect women with the truth of God's word about what true discipleship really is and based and rooted in what God's word says it is rather than in so many of the resources out there today that sort of water down biblical discipleship and blend it in with what we see in the world. And that doesn't work. But people are taking that in and because so many things are billed as Christian that aren't necessarily biblical, in some ways we've lost the ability to, to discern what is biblical and what isn't when it comes to discipleship. And for that reason, I kind of thought, let's put a book out there on this and kind of shine some light on the self-help messages that are masking as discipleship. One of the things I found refreshing in your writing is that you do not shy away from telling it like it is. There were a lot of, oh snap, moments for me as I read your words, and one of them being right out the gate. As we live in the age of the selfie, we have even more opportunity for our self-absorbed tendencies to express themselves. We are constantly under the influence of a quote, what do people think of me mentality. However, you write that, quote, in Christ, we are called to ask a different question. What do people think of Christ? When we are driven by a concern for how people perceive him, we can live free from the bondage of what people think of us. Honestly, I don't think I have ever asked that question with regards to its implications for our self-consciousness. Would you explain this further and why this perception is so critical for us to practice? Yeah, if you think about it, what we focus on is going to motivate and govern us. And forget who it was who said once, we are always conformed to that upon which we center our interest and love. We will always be conformed to whatever that, the object of our affection. So it, when we are enraptured with Christ and taken up with him, he is going to be our motivation and our focus. If you, if you kind of think about what it is to be in love, when you're in love with somebody, isn't it true that you're thinking about their well-being and how to please them and how to bring them pleasure and, and how to delight them in ways big and small? And we're sort of oriented toward that person. It's the same thing when we love the Lord so much. We're oriented toward Him and we care what other people think of Him too. So that frees us from always thinking about ourselves because if we're occupied, preoccupied with Christ, we can't simultaneously be preoccupied with ourselves. And we don't realize, I think, to the extent that we do, we're so curved inward that we're constantly analyzing ourselves and looking at ourselves through the eyes of other people. You know, what do people think of me? And think about when we get dressed in the morning, that's when it begins. Who are we dressing for? We're seeing ourselves through the eyes of the people who are going to look at what we're wearing that day. And it comes into every decision we make throughout the day. And it goes on like a white noise underneath, uh, not consciously thinking about it, but it's always there sort of governing us. But if we are so taken up with something else, someone else, we're going to be much less in bondage to that tyranny of worrying and wondering, even underneath at a subconscious level, what other people think of us. There's a chapter in your book that discusses how the gospel frees us from self-improvement. And I really resonated with it because as someone who has battled against depression on and off for a very long time, I know what it is to desperately want to change who I am and how I feel. But you warn us not to view God as a divine repairman, writing that, quote, true Christian discipleship is a call to die not to improve. That was such an insightful point for me to chew on. So how can someone who is desperate for change rightly handle their deep desire to improve without straying from Christ-centered goals in the process? You know, I think motivation is what makes the difference. 
you know, we might end up having the same goals. If, if we're motivated by Christian discipleship, it's a desire to live for the Lord. As he said, you know, lay down your life, take up your cross. Uh, he who would come after me must be willing to die to him or herself. So there's improvement in that. We can kind of think of it in those terms, but it's about laying ourselves aside. So how do we do it in our day-to-day -day lives when it's not about Christian discipleship? What, what are the goals of self-improvement? They tend to be, we want to look better. We want to be in better shape. We want to lose 10 pounds. We want to conquer besetting sin. Well, that's obviously only Christians think about that. But just in the realm of our own personal lives, whether we're Christians or not, these are some of the things we think about. We want to be the best us we can possibly be. So it's really the orientation is ourselves. So what we can do then sometimes is we, we try to co-opt God to help us achieve our own goals. So we pray for God's help to lose 10 pounds. We pray for God's help to overcome a particular besetting sin. We pray for God's help to work out three times a week, or we pray for God's help even to be a better employee at work or to be better moms or whatever it is we're, we're seeking to improve. We just try to pray and grab onto God and say, help me become this because I know you want me to be the best me. Well, discipleship sort of has, has a very different orientation and motivation. When we're, Christ is the focal point of our lives, what we're then saying is, what is the best thing I can do to showcase my Savior? So we may still want to lose 10 pounds, but our motivation is glorifying God. And it doesn't mean that we don't, it, it's not wrong to say, yeah, I'm going to feel great if I lose 10 pounds. But we're not trying to use God to feel better about ourselves. Instead, we're saying, we're oriented around Him, on Him, and saying, you know what, this is a better way for me to serve you and point to you. And, and to have more energy or whatever for my walk with you. And you know what? As a sideline benefit, I'm going to feel pretty good too. You see, so it's, I think it's really about orientation and motivation, even if the actual thing we're tackling is one and the same. Those are really just, I'm sitting here feeling like you've just blessed my socks off <laughs> because it's just, you know, these are such critical messages that I don't think women are hearing, like you said in your, the introduction to this show. And I'm just, I'm just so thankful you've taken the time to help us to unpack these things because they are so, so important to our walk with Christ. A self-analysis is another stumbling block I know well, and it's so easy to do when we are thirsty for personal transformation. You explain to readers that, quote, self-analysis is good and right when we do it under the light of scripture. It's destructive and sinful when the aim of all that internal rooting around is merely personal happiness. And that was an oh snap moment for me because it really forced me to take a hard look at my past motivations for desiring change in my life. And that perhaps more often than not, personal happiness really was my main motivation for the spiritual disciplines I was engaged in. What should we do if we discover that we have been attempting to use biblical practices in order to elevate our feelings to the same level of importance as our faith? First of all, I mean, if we just kind of look at that and have that dis the moment of discovery, it can be like, well, what do I do with that? And right. how do we even begin to think about changing that? And I think one thing is to recognize feelings aren't wrong and God designed us to be emotional beings. So we're meant to feel the ups and the downs of our life. And so there's different approaches. People can say, well, I'm going to crush my feelings and make them to sort of not even matter. Or we can make them too important. And so the self-analysis thing we're talking about here in the book, what we tend to do is we look at how we feel, we examine it to then dictate the course of our lives. 
So what we can then do with God's word is to say, well, I think what I'm going to do is, you know, in my time with the Lord, I'm going to focus on passages on this topic because it's going to help me have a better this or be a better that, and I'm going to feel great. It's co-opting God's word to make ourselves feel good. So self-analysis in this sense here is really about using our feelings to drive our life. And this is where it gets tricky because feelings, again, there's nothing wrong with feeling great and being happy. And, and who doesn't desire those feelings? They're not wrong. And we, we shouldn't be suspicious of something because it makes us happy. And sometimes we can think that God is ready to just waiting to make us holier by, you know, we feel, we feel a little scared if we're ever happy. What's going to knock this down? Mm. And God is so not like that. He loves to bless us. He loves when his children are happy the same way parents love when their kids are happy. He just wants it to be in the right things. And so what we can do, though, is take our emotional temperature and use that as a determiner of the state of our lives. And the example I use in the book is of a woman who's not very happy in her life. So she sits down with some friends and they try to dissect, you know, her marriage is, is kind of blah and she's, she's bored at her job. And so her friends come in and say, you know, we think you married the wrong guy and you, you need to just go on vacation or maybe you need to go on a shopping spree and like all these things to sort of feel good. But the, the main thing is, you know, do we really need to change our spouse or change our job because we don't feel well? We, we look at our emotions as the determiner of whether something is good or bad in our life instead of looking at it and saying, where is the Lord in this? So the where scripture comes into self-analysis too is to say, how do I parse this circumstance in my life and these emotions by scripture rather than determining what scripture says based on how we feel? So, you know, I think about, I've just been reading Hebrews chapter 12, where it talks about the Lord's discipline. It talks about besetting sins and how God takes us through trials and things as, as, a, as a way to strengthen us for, and to persevere in our faith. And I've never thought about the fact that having to fight sin and be in a battle is God's discipline. And we tend to think of his discipline as consequences of sin, as like, you know, weather this thing through, when just even engaging the battle is God's discipline. Mm -hmm. And that also goes with processing our emotions biblically with the Lord. We go to him and say, I am depressed, or I am feeling really blah, or I'm feeling really unhappy in my marriage, or whatever it is, and saying, Lord, where are you in this? And who are you in this? And how do I relate to you in this? And it doesn't mean we don't avail ourselves of every earthly help he provides, because those are great gifts from God. But are we judging God and his word based on how we feel? And are we judging our lives based on how we feel? Or are we allowing the Lord and his word to instead judge our emotions and so that we can then understand our emotions through the lens of scripture rather than the other way around? I love that you just mentioned all of that about emotions and feelings because we just released a podcast episode interviewing Alistair Groves of the CCEF and yeah. the episode was hope and help for overwhelming feelings or mm -hmm. overwhelming emotions either way. Um, so if you are listening to this episode and you want to check out a little bit more about how to engage our feelings in the way that Lydia was describing, you could certainly scroll down the podcast library and check out that episode. It would be super helpful for you in that area. Now, self-care is a booming industry. An article at shape.com 
reported that more than half of millennial women made self-care their 2018 New Year's resolution, essentially agreeing that mental health deserves more attention and committing to make it a top priority. What are some of the dangers of the self-care movement that Christians need to be mindful of, and how can we pursue beneficial ways of caring for ourselves without bowing to an idol of comfort or becoming self-indulgent in the process? Yeah, it's a fine line. Uh, sometimes, other times, it's not such a fine line. Uh, I think some of the dangers of the self-care movement is that it does drive us inward, and then for Christians, self-care and evangelicalism have been married in some mm-hmm. ways. They they've sort of come together. And so I have to stand back and say, let's figure out where is this biblical and where is it not? Mm-hmm. Where it's helpful is for people who, and there are many women, we, I'm sure we both know, Christine, there are many women who don't, who struggle with saying no. They feel guilty if they ever say no. And they drive themselves to utter burnout and exhaustion right. by caring for others or not knowing when to say no to something, feeling compelled to say yes to every time they're asked to do something for someone. And they are desperately in need of self-care and setting limits in their life and knowing how to biblically do that. I I can't help but think of Jesus when he uh, would would be in the midst of all these people needing healing on the beach there, crowds of people. The the occasions where he would get in a boat and go to the other side to go pray and be alone with his heavenly father. And he left hurting people on the beach there and he got in a boat and went away. And I'm sure these are people who are sick and suffering. If he, the God man, got in a boat to go away and be alone with his father and pray, who are we to think that we don't need to do that? I love that he sets that example for us, that the need isn't always the need to drive ourselves into the ground. We need spiritual refreshment and physical refreshment in order to care well for other people. So in that sense, self-care is important. And there's no more important means of self-care than than guarding our heart in the Lord and in our relationship with him and making sure we're staying spiritually sane. So that kind of self-care is just good common sense and sanctified common sense. Uh, the, The trendy kind that I think is problematic is saying, I can't love other people until I first loved myself. And so it's sort of a way to baptize selfishness. And it's saying, I need three hours of me time if I'm going to be able to be nice to you. Or I hear moms who are fed up with their kids. They make jokes about, you know, the the mom wine and needing drinks to be able to go do this activity with their kids. And they're different. It's self-care, they call it. And, And I just think, this is so dangerous because it's not really self-care, it's selfishness. Mm-hmm. So the, that's the biggest danger of all. One of the things, we, we have these life coaches today, mm-hmm. and I think that's become a profession. And there's even this professional certification training for that. Well, so that can be really helpful. Some people need some, it, you know, it's basically like it's going out and, and getting some help, guidance for life. And it's now gone into the professional realm. But if we feel like when it comes into Christianity, when evangelicalism, and we feel like we have to have a life coach to someone we pay to focus exclusively on every decision we make and why we're making it, it's most conducive to our happiness. We are so orienting our money and our time and our thoughts on, again, on our own happiness and on ourselves. And that, that breaches self-care and it takes it into the realm of an utter self-focus. Self-focus is actually self-defeating 
because you know the paradox of life is that happiness and joy come from from going up and out of ourselves the more curved in on ourselves we get the more depressed we can get the more frustrated and and more the the more life doesn't seem to work miraculously the way god's designed us is freedom and joy and pleasure and delight come when we get out of ourselves and care for our whole orientation is to care for others with the Lord at, at the center of everything we do. And again, it doesn't mean that we drive ourselves into the ground and burn ourselves out, but it does mean we're talking here about an, an overall orientation of what we're focused on. I love that you just mentioned that. I was just working on article and researching Isaiah 58, and it talks about there that if you will serve the needs of the needy and try to make things better for the oppressed. So in essence, pouring yourself out for other people, trying to do his will by serving the needy and the poor, then you will be refreshed. And so we actually become refreshed as we serve others. Exactly. And, and not just thinking always about our needs and I got to do this thing or that thing for myself, but really just taking the time to look at what's around you. How can I honor God in, in the circumstances that I'm in? How can I help people who need you know real help? And in that way, we will have light infused into our darkness and we will be refreshed. Our bones will be refreshed. Our strength will be restored as we are serving others in a way that doesn't necessarily mean we are, you know, constantly spent with one hour of sleep a day, but just of that other mindedness that you're talking about and that the Lord can actually strengthen us and care for us in those times when we are serving and holding in higher regard the needs of others. Exactly. And, you know, we don't do it in our own strength. And that's the thing. If, if we try to step out and care for others in our own strength, it's that the world does that. It's that we find that as we lean into the Lord as our strength and then step out while we're leaning on Christ, it, there's a, it's spirit empowered to do what otherwise we can't do. And then it's infused with a grace, with a love, with a compassion and mercy uh, and a joy that apart from Christ, we just can't know. And then that's another way to ward off burnout. It, we don't do it in our own strength. We do it in the strength the Lord supplies. Well, your chapter on self-condemnation was really powerful. I know the temptation to condemn ourselves for our failures is a dangerous territory to find ourselves in. You point out that sometimes, quote, we view our personal failures as sin, even when God's word does not. And that, quote, scripture is where we learn that failing to reach personal goals isn't necessarily sinful, but having a perfectionistic spirit that can that demands it is. When we fall into that trap of self-condemnation, what lies are we believing about the gospel? What are we being blinded by and what can be done to flourish when feelings of guilt or inadequacy weigh upon us? You know, this is, this is so true, isn't it? I mean, I think we all have things we're ashamed of, uh, whether they're a, it's a sin that we committed 10 years ago or 10 minutes ago. There are things we want to hide from ourselves, from the world, and they can nag at us underneath and suck the life out of us and make us uh, unfruitful and ineffective and can really shut the joy out of our lives. And the way out of this is always, always, always looking at the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is the myth that I want to, when I talk about false teaching that's out there today, they, people talk about you need to forgive yourself. And that is such a lie that can just cause women who are struggling with the self feelings of self-condemnation, it just entrenches them more in it. Because for one thing, what does it really mean to forgive yourself? 
why do people try that and it fails? Because you can't really forgive yourself. If Jesus has forgiven you, that's enough. If he and his sacrifice for sin is enough to pay for our sin, if we continue to condemn ourselves, what we're really saying is his sacrifice for sin isn't enough. What we're saying is, well, Lord, you may forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. You know, it sounds harsh to say, but we really need to stand back and look at what, what does that mean? What are we saying when we're saying, well, Lord, you forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. It's setting ourselves over God in terms of, of judgment here. It, we don't consciously do that, but that's what we're doing. And so we look to the finished work of Christ and say, your payment is so big and so huge that no matter what I did and how recently I did it, your sacrifice is enough for me. And what we can pray for is the ability to, to recognize and to see the pride underneath that craving for self-forgiveness. It's really linked to pride and it's, it's hard to see it. It doesn't feel that way. It feels the opposite of that, mm -hmm. but it really is pride. And so we can ask the Lord, show me how this is pride because I don't get that. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't feel like pride. It feels the opposite, but self-condemnation is actually setting ourselves high, so high in a way that, that we need to not be. If, I hope that makes sense. I mean, it's, we, need to, we need to pray for the Lord to help us understand how that works. The work of Christ is enough. But then we also just say, Lord, I, I can't get that. I can't let go of this. And we also have, we have a spiritual enemy who does not want us to let go of the past, doesn't want us to let go of the things we've done, uh, that doesn't want us to uh, rise above our sin. And so, you know, we think we have in, in Zechariah chapter three there, we have Zechariah's vision of Joshua, the high priest, and how he was, there's it, a courtroom scene there. And we have this high priest is sitting in the court and he's covered with really dirty, gross clothes. And Satan comes in there and accuses him and accuses him. And then, so we have the angel of the Lord saying, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. This man has been plucked from the burning. And, and, and this is, we have an accuser who wants to point out our filth and our dirt all the time. So pride can be a piece of it, but we also have an enemy. And this is where we need to turn right to the cross, turn to the Lord and say, what you did is so huge and so big that it conquers everything. We pray and ask him to work that truth into our hearts. And we focus, we, we read Romans 8 and we read it every day. And we, if we're struggling with self-condemnation, we get into the book of Romans. We spend weeks in Romans chapter 8, praying through it, reading through it, asking the Lord to apply those truths to our understanding and to set us free from this bondage of self-condemnation. It seems like many of the messages we receive about our purpose, our identity, and even our faith can often curve us in on ourselves, as you mentioned earlier, helping to perpetuate the reflexive habit of self-focus. Are there a few practical things we can do to begin to train our minds in this area to rightly discern between toxic thinking and that which is true? Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that we are told to do in scripture is guard our thoughts and our minds. And, you know, we, there's, there's very few commands about our emotions, but there are many about our thoughts, which means I think that what we do with our thoughts is going to determine how we feel. Uh, so we can begin to train our minds as we are told in the New Testament there. We are, well, even in the Old Testament, you think about the wonderful things. So starting, we have the Apostle Paul who says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
And then if you think about Romans 12, one and two, where he says to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice and to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so, you know, we're told to set our minds, to do things with our minds, to govern our thoughts. And then you think about what we see in Isaiah, where he writes that uh, you will keep him in per- God will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And I love that verse because what we're, see- we're seeing here is that a mind that is fixed on the Lord, it goes hand in hand with trusting the Lord. So you know we have to kind of ask ourselves. I think if we're struggling with trust. Where's our mind fixed? Are we focused on the Lord? Are we stayed on him? Are we immersing ourselves, marinating in scripture? Uh, Are we surrounding ourselves with godly influences and and good things? And so that is how I think that we, the practical ways we keep the toxicity away is to guard ourselves in the Lord, in scripture. And that gives us a flavor and a taste for what is biblical and what isn't. So when we're out there and we're reading, we're seeing, hearing podcasts and finding things online and articles and books, we develop a, a taste for what's biblical and what isn't. And then it's this discernment that comes from a mind that has been steeped in scripture. I also want to mention too, if you are listening and are interested, the book itself, Lydia's book, Flourish, actually at the very back comes with a 30-day study guide. I'll read just a snippet about what it is. If you'd like to dig deeper into how the love of Christ frees you from self-focus, this 30-day study guide is a place to begin. There are five days of study questions for each of the six chapters in Flourish. So that's a little bonus there. If this is a subject that or a topic that you really want to work into your heart, work through, just like Lydia was talking about, getting a copy of the book and then taking advantage of the 30-day study guide in it, I think would be really fruitful to participate in. Can you explain the role that pride plays in our struggle against self-doubts and how the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us to become increasingly self-forgetful over time? Yeah, I mean, think about what does pride do? Pride is orienting us on ourselves. Pride is making much of us. When we're proud, we make much of ourselves. And I think about what the Apostle Peter said uh, when he tells us, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. So the very act of casting our cares upon the Lord is how we humble ourselves. Think about what self-consciousness is. It's being consumed with what people think of us. Self-improvement is being consumed with becoming a better person. Self-analysis is being consumed with how we feel. All these different things are so self-focused. We're not casting those cares on the Lord. We're taking them on ourselves. So we, we cast them on the Lord. And we find as we do, as we humble ourselves under his mighty hand, uh, that we are transformed. We become Christ-dependent rather than dependent on what people think of us and how we feel and on wanting to be the best us we can be. Pride is thinking that those things are everything. It's thinking that we are the pinnacle of life, of our lives. And becoming self-forgetful isn't to say we don't matter. It's to show us how and why we matter so much. And so paradoxically, the very thing that we try to grab onto by focusing on ourselves We'll never find that way. It's letting go of what we think we need to make life work. And what we think we need is to utterly focus on ourselves. But if we lay that down and be willing to let go of that and to lean into Christ and focus on him, 
that we're going to find the very thing we've been looking for all along. We're just about out of time, so I want to invite you to do something I ask every guest on the episode to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening to this episode who is struggling with some of the self-focused issues we've discussed today. What would you say to this person to give them the courage they need to humble themselves to Christ and to accept the freedom from self his love provides? You know, I would say take the risk. You know, what do you have to lose? You have a huge Savior. He loves you more than you even know. He loves you way more than you, you love yourself. Take the risk. Take this leap of faith. You know, we think about faith as grabbing onto our Savior. You know, remember the, the kids game about trust and you close your eyes and you fall backward, trusting that your friend will catch you. That's what real faith is more about. Because there's really in the first instance, when we grab on, we're still doing something. We're still having a measure of control. But when we fall back, we are completely out of control. And I think for people struggling so much with some of these areas of self-consciousness and other things, that we're afraid. They're afraid to let go. You're afraid to let go. Fall backward onto Christ. Prayerfully let go and say, I'm going to focus on you and not on this. I'm going to stop with your help living for what people think or for trying to improve myself or to overcome this particular sin in my own strength. I'm going to stop hiding my struggle with this besetting sin from people who could really help me. I'm going to be honest with the Lord and other people. And I'm, whatever the case may be for you, whatever your struggle with, with self-consciousness, with self-focus, whatever it is, fall backward onto Christ and take the risk of being willing, even prayerfully, to lay it down and let go. Well, those are really encouraging words, Lydia. Thank you so much for sharing them with us. If there is someone listening who wants to learn more about your, your writing, your books, you have a number of books. I didn't even realize how many you have written, but I want to get them all and read them now. They look all so amazing. Where can someone go to find out more about your, your writing and your ministry? They can go to LydiaBrownback.com. Uh, it's my website. I, I blog occasionally, maybe once a year. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but my books are all there and there's a way to contact me there if people would like to do that. So yeah, LydiaBrownback.com. Awesome. I will go ahead and be sure that link is posted in the show notes for this podcast episode. So if you are interested, you can scroll down and look in the show notes section, click the link, and that will take you to all of the resources that Lydia has, her books, and then also her website. Well, Lydia, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your insanely busy schedule to talk to us about self-focus and how the gospel can free us from it. I think it was a really important conversation, and I hope that the listeners who have joined us today have gained a lot of wisdom and biblical insights for taking some next steps forward. Oh, thanks, Christine. I've really enjoyed talking about all of this with you today. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode, complete with links to Lydia's books and other helpful resources. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I would be so thankful if you left a review for the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe to be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help Project a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. One more thing, if you're looking for gospel hope and help for life's challenging problems, visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash email. 
I send my email subscribers weekly biblical counseling resources on rotating topics. From videos, audios, articles, and recommended reading, these emails are designed to equip you to discover gospel hope and help in your own life. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help Project.